0: I'm going to have uh, us turn to our text for this morning, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and while you're finding your way there, uh, just a few details uh, about tonight. Um, So I've talked about this before, but basically a few months ago, our council voted uh, here to end our evening worship service at Ivanrest. And when that happened, Matt and I proposed uh, trying something else in its place. And we're calling it Sunday Night, really original name, I know. Uh, But the basic idea is this. Uh, It's gonna look and feel somewhat similar uh, to the traditional evening service here. Uh, For instance, we'll sing traditional songs and hymns together, we'll have a time of prayer, and we'll also have a Bible teaching time, and we're starting that uh, this evening. that Bible teaching time is going to look a little bit different though, and that's because instead of doing a, a, a full different sermon, uh, we're actually going to dive deeper into the same text that we look at in the morning. Uh, so for tonight, that will be Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And what we're going to do each week is I'll come with an outline of additional of additional material that I'm not able to get to uh, from my commentary and study work uh, in the morning message, and that'll allow me an opportunity to dive uh, deeper into some aspects of the text that I find interesting or helpful, uh, but just couldn't uh, pack into the sermon. It'll also allow you the opportunity, to, though, to come and ask any questions that you might have uh, about that text or, or uh, details or aspects that I didn't talk about in the morning sermon. And the hope is that uh, together this will allow us to pop the hood a little bit more on the texts that we study uh, together and come to a greater understanding of God's word. I do want to say, though, that this is a trial run, okay? Uh, Before COVID, we were down, my understanding is we were down to about 20 to 25 people in the evening worship service here, which basically means that most of us weren't taking advantage of it as a discipleship and worship opportunity. And that's part of why our council made the decision to end the evening service. instead of having Matt and me spend our time and energy on something that people weren't really engaging with, our council wanted us to to try and spend our time and energy on on other things. Well, this is one of those other things uh, that we wanted to to take a shot at. And so that's what we're trying tonight, um, to offer a different discipleship and worship opportunity for people uh, to engage with and appreciate. If no one shows up, though, or people come and no one really asks any questions or doesn't really engage with what we're trying to do, then that'll tell us uh, over the course of time that this isn't it either, and we've got a few other ideas in the hopper that we'll try as well. So, makes sense? Sound good? Everyone coming back tonight? Great. Let's read our text. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And this is what Luke writes about the early believers. They, that's the early believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that the apostles performed. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued meeting in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, I wonder a bit if we all mean the same thing when we say that after our text this morning, thanks be to God. Uh, I wonder that because there might be some of us here this morning who hear this text and we get a little excited. You know, we hear this passage, these verses, this description of the early church, and we think, wow. You know, that's what God intended the church to be. Thank God for that. what, What a wonderful picture of Christian community. That's how church ought to be. That's the way that we should still be as Christians today. I wish that we still looked the same way as the first century Christians in the 21st century. Others of us might hear this text, though, and think, thanks be to God that we aren't that way anymore. That was then and this is now and all that stuff might have worked for the early Christians back then in the first few days and weeks of the church but it wouldn't work for us today and so thanks be to God that we don't have to do things the same way that the early Christians did. You see, this is actually a pretty divisive passage of scripture. Um, It might not look like that On the surface, after all, at least to my knowledge, this isn't one of those texts that we as Christians have divided denominations over or fought wars about or um, excommunicated people because of. But the fact of the matter is that different people read this passage very differently from each other. And as a result, people also come to some very different interpretations of it as well. Uh, for instance, some people read these verses at the end of Acts chapter 2 and they think that that's how all Christians should live. They kind of romanticize this passage and believe that we as Christians should sell all our property and possessions, move in together, and live as one big happy family. Others respond that's why we have cults. That was a joke. <laughs> Thank you. Just for this morning, though, let's try and set aside any baggage that we might have when it comes to this passage. Uh, We can unpack that later tonight. And instead, let's try to approach this text with new eyes, with listening ears, and with open hearts. And as we do that, let's try to see this passage and its description of the early church not as a strict example for us to either imitate or ignore, but instead as a call to live a different way as Christians, a generous way of living a Christ-like way of living. And that's who we need to start with this morning. As we explore this passage, we need to start there with Jesus Christ. We need to start with Christ because that's where these early Christians started too. After all, he was the reason that they lived this way. He was the reason that their lives looked like this. He was the reason they had begun living so radically and generously, both with each other and also with others. You see, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives us this this description of the early church right after the Apostle Peter's uh, sermon on the first Christian Pentecost. Most of us probably know the story, but on the morning of that first Pentecost, uh, Peter and the other apostles were all together when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They started speaking in tongues and praising God, and eventually a crowd gathered around them, and so Peter stood up and delivered a sermon to everyone who was listening. He talked about how Jesus had come as Lord and Savior, He told the people that though Jesus had died, he had been raised back to life. And finally, Peter called the people to repentance. He told them that there was forgiveness in Christ and that through him and him alone, they too could be saved. And Luke records the response to that sermon. And truth be told, it's overwhelming. As Luke describes it in the verse right before our passage for this morning, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, those who accepted his, that's Peter's message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people. 3,000 responded to Peter's sermon. I've already resigned myself to the fact that I will never have a sermon that effective. Um, But that's the response. 3,000 people are convicted and convinced by Peter's words. 3,000 people convert and come to believe the gospel good news of Jesus Christ. 3,000 people join the church and start living in a dramatically different, generous way. And it all started with Jesus Christ, with a newfound awareness of what he'd done for them, with an understanding of his generous grace towards them. That's how transformative the gospel can be. It can transform 3,000 people just like that. And that transformative power of the gospel is all-encompassing because it doesn't transform just one or two areas of our lives. It transforms every part of us. In Jesus Christ, all of us starts to change. That's what happens when we become convinced of the gospel. It leaves no part of us untouched. The grace of God infiltrates every part of our identity, every part of our character, or every part of our habits, every part of our way of being and way of living, and it all starts to look different, top to bottom, inside and out, 360 degrees. And that's what happened for these early Christians, too. Once they came to faith in Christ, their entire lives started to change, and that's the picture that Luke is trying to give us here in this text, He's trying to describe what that total transformation looked like for the early believers. And so what did it look like? Well, as we saw, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship and hospitality, to communal meals and prayer. They worshiped together at the temple. They opened their homes both to each other and to others. And they also started to live differently when it came to their things, their possessions, their stuff. Right in the middle of our passage, Luke writes this, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In other words, the early Christians were so inspired by everything that Christ had done for them that it changed not only their religious beliefs, not only what they believed about God and how they related to him, but also their day-to-day lives. And as Luke records here, that included how they lived in relationship both with each other and with others, but also how they lived in relationship with their things, with their stuff, with what they owned, with their property and their possessions. And some of them sold some of it. They gave it up. And then they took the proceeds, and they gave it to others who needed it more. In other words, the early Christians, in response to the blessings that they suddenly realized that they had received from Christ, decided to take some of their earthly blessings and use them to bless others as well. Now, in some ways, this wouldn't have been a completely foreign concept for the early Christians. After all, that's actually how most families lived back then. Um, In our society today, our extended families uh, have more distance in them, but back then, that wasn't the case. In fact, in that time and culture, most families, everybody in the extended family, would all work together in one family business. Um, So that would be grandparents, parents, children, aunts, uncles, cousins, everyone worked together in the same field or industry. And as a result, all the money that they made would have gone into a single purse or a common pot, out of which the entire family's needs would have been provided for. That way, if Uncle Saul didn't have as many customers as cousin James did in the family leather working business, he and his family would still be taken care of because the rest of the family had their back. That's how people made sure that no one in their family fell into poverty or struggled, because they worked together and shared the proceeds proceeds together, and that's how families took care of each other. What's interesting is that from what we can tell, that's actually how Jesus and his disciples also lived during his earthly ministry. Put simply, as Jesus and his disciples traveled around from place to place, they lived as if they were members of the same family. They had a common purse, a common pot that they contributed to, and that's what took care of everyone's needs. And this was different because while it was common for families to do that, the unique thing that Jesus and his disciples did was that they were unrelated people who still lived together that way. They lived like a family. What we see here in this passage, then, is Jesus' disciples sticking with that model. They weren't necessarily doing anything new because this is how they had lived when Jesus was actually with him. He's ascended just before this, right? But they're still living the same way that they did when he was with them, living as a family. The only difference, though, is as we just saw, they've just grown by 3,000 people. That changes the dynamic a little bit, right? And yet, they still continued to see themselves this way as a family, as the family of God. That's what Luke is describing here. And so as a result, they were willing to do what they needed to in order to take care of each other, even if it meant selling off some extra property or possessions to make room in that family for their new brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, two brief notes on all of that before we move on. Uh, First, according to the commentators I looked at, uh, the early Christians probably didn't sell all their property and possessions. Um, Some people like to interpret this passage that way, as if uh, the believers sold everything that they owned and then lived completely in common, and that doesn't seem to be the case. That's because we know from uh, just history that the early church was a house church movement. They didn't have specialized buildings like we do today where they would come to church. Instead, they worshipped in the homes of their wealthier members because those homes were big enough to accommodate the entire congregation in fact we even see that here in verse 46 when it says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts and so clearly some of the early Christians kept their property and possessions and that's what they used to worship together so it's not that everyone gave up everything that they had instead what verses 44 and 45 seem to be referring to here is that some of the early Christians sold off some of their extra property and possessions to give to those in need Okay, so that's an important note. So is this, because some people interpret uh, this passage as meaning that whenever somebody joined the early church, they had to sell their property and possessions, and again, that doesn't seem to be the case. It doesn't seem that the early church was forcing people to sell things in order to join. Um, After all, as one commentator I read pointed out, the fact that Luke continues to highlight this kind of generosity throughout the, the rest of the book of Acts means that this was a special thing that some Christians in the early church did, and it might have even been somewhat common, but it wasn't a requirement. The church wasn't forcing anybody to do this sort of thing. Rather, those who did it were simply responding to the grace that they had experienced through Christ and what they felt God was leading them to do. That might make some of us breathe a little easier here this morning. Um, after all, when I've engaged with this passage, uh, there always seems to be kind of an anxiety in the room of is this what we now have to do as Christians? We have to look like this? We have to live like this? So knowing that it wasn't a requirement uh, maybe makes us feel a little bit more at ease. That said, I'm not sure that it should After all, requirements are easy, right? Rules are easy. They're black and white. They're cut and dry. Just follow them and you know you're on the right track. Give 10%, right? Sell off your extra property and possessions. Give the proceeds to the poor. That's what it means to be a Christian. Do that and you'll be on good terms with God. There is a reason people like to take this text and others like it and turn it into a New Testament version of Leviticus, because then it provides us with a roadmap, right? It tells us the requirements, and it's like every other area of our lives, right? It gives us a measurement. Put in the time, the effort, the focus, and the work, and you get the grade, you get the degree, you get the job, the raise. We like requirements because they tell us where we stand, and they also tell us how to get better. And so that's how some people approach this text. They approach it like it gives us a set of rules, like it gives us a model and an example that we have to follow. And while it might set a high bar, at least it gives us a bar that we can measure ourselves according to. In some ways, it's easier to figure out what generosity looks like when we're simply told what it needs to look like. But like we've been saying in this series, when it comes to generosity, at least the Christian understanding of it, it doesn't work that way. I've said this before, right, in the first sermon in this series. I grew up thinking that it worked that way, that there was a rule and a requirement. Tithe 10%. Follow that, and you're doing what you need to. But what, like we talked about a couple weeks ago in that sermon, I'm not sure that those Old Testament passages apply the same way to us today. And so, what some, and, and some people who are also convinced of that try to replace it then with some other rule, some other requirement, like this text. And so is that how we ought to approach this, that this is the rule, this is the bar, this is what God expects? I don't think so. Because Christian generosity, as we've been talking about in this series, it's not really about that. It's not about a rule. It's not about a requirement. Instead, generosity is a heart issue. It's up to us to decide what God is calling us to. It's up to us to decide what sacrificial looks like. It's up to us to decide how to respond to God's incredible generosity and grace towards us. Because when we peel back the layers, that's really what I think we see going on in this text. We see these early Christians responding to God's grace Responding to his mercy, responding to his forgiveness, and living in ways that live out that grace, mercy, and forgiveness. That's the context here, right? Why did these people start to live this way? What had transformed their lives and made them start to live in this radical, sacrificial, generous way towards each other and towards others? It was the gospel, right? It was in response to a sermon, is in response to hearing about God's grace and mercy towards them. It was in response to God's salvation. That's what prompted them to change their habits, to change their lives, to change their relationships. That's what their generosity was all about here. It was about God's grace, and it was about the gospel. And I would say that that's still what generosity should be about for us today. It's about grace. It's about forgiveness, it's about mercy, and it's about responding to all of that with gratitude and generosity ourselves. And Again, there's no rule, I don't think, for what that looks like. I don't think I can stand up here and tell you what generosity ought to look like for you. I don't think it's a dollar amount or a percentage or selling off so much stuff because that's not what generosity is. In the Christian understanding, it's not about legalism. Instead, like we talked about last week, and we see that in this text this morning with these early Christians too, generosity, true generosity, Christian generosity, is an all-of-life response to the grace and goodness of God. Like we said last week, it's one part of the fabric of the Christian life. And while that might be a bit trickier to figure out sometimes than if we just had a rule to tell us what to do or how much to give, I actually think it's better. And here's why. We haven't talked about this a lot so far in this series, but Christian generosity isn't just about money. It kind of has that reputation. When we talk about generosity, we immediately think about money, and that's part of it. But another part of it is our time and our talents, too. And the early Christians here seem to understand that, right? After all, how the, Christians, how the early Christians lived in this passage in their relationship to their stuff is an important part of these verses, but so is how they lived together, right? I mean, the picture that we get here is that these people did everything together. They learned about Jesus together, they worshiped together, they celebrated the Lord's Supper together, they prayed together, they lived together, they ate together, and they praised God for what he was doing in and through them together. You see, these Christians, our spiritual forefathers and mothers understood well that since they had been given new life in Christ, they were to live in that life with each other, and they did that with their money, sure, but they also did it with their time. They did it with their talents and abilities, too. Like we talked about, these people saw themselves as the family of God, and so they lived into that. They loved each other. They loved each other because they knew the love Christ had for them, and so they were willing to practice a well-rounded generosity. A generosity that went beyond things to a generosity that included everything else too, every other part of them. It was money, possessions, and property, sure, but it was also time, talents, and everything else wrapped up all together. You see, the early church's generosity wasn't limited to just a few generous actions here or there. Instead, it was a way of life. A way of life done together. A way of life that, while it included material generosity, went beyond that. That's because it was a way of life that included every part of who they were. Again, it was one part of the fabric of their lives as Christians together. That's what generosity looks like. That's what it means to live generously as God's people, and that's the kind of generosity that we are still called to as Christian believers today. Material generosity, which is generosity with our money, our property, our possessions, that's important, but that's not the full picture. And I think that's part of what we see in this text. Instead, once we're transformed by the grace of God, once we're forgiven, saved, and reconciled to him, once we're called back to his family and made his people again, we're also called to more than just generous acts. That's because we are called to live generous lives. Lives that are generous with our money, but also our time, our talents, our love, and our care for one another. After all, just like those early Christians, our generosity too, still today, is a response to the gospel. Just like those early believers, we too have been transformed by God's grace. We too have received his mercy. We too have experienced his forgiveness. In generous love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live among us, to die for us, and to take the penalty for our sin. He then rose to new life so that we could be transformed and live in that new life, too. That's what our generosity is a response to, just like those early believers. And like we said each week, we're looking for ideas right now on how we, too, can live out that generosity together. The early believers did that in some tangible ways. We'd like to come up with some tangible ways for us to do that too. And so send any ideas that you have for that to the email address that we've set up for this series, generosity at ivanrestcrc.org. And let's see how God might lead us to live generously in response to his grace to us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the grace that you have given us. For 2,000 years, that grace and that gospel good news has been transforming people. It transformed those early believers in the early days of the church in response to Peter's sermon. Lord, continue to transform us through your grace. Help us to live generously in response to the generosity that you have lavished upon us. Thank you for making us your people, Lord. Help us to live as your people each and every day of our lives, in every area of our lives. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.